I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. I'm going to tell you about my trip to our nation's capital. And Autumn and I are going to talk about the rise in COVID cases as the Delta variant continues to rise. And then later on in the show, Lane Scales sets down with Dr. Jonathan Tran from Baylor University School of Religion. And it's a great conversation that you want to stay tuned for. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas a womanist in ministry, and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of the Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode, we're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes released every Sunday beginning July 18th. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things with you? It's good to be home. Yeah, we're glad you're home. You had, I was going to say a crazy 24 hours in D.C., but I mean, the bar for 2021 crazy in D.C. is set pretty high after January 6th. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it was uh, the first 24 hours in our nation's capital was probably some of the most chaotic uh, time I've ever spent there. Um, I, I, I pulled a bonehead move and I was so angry at myself. I got on the Metro, was was heading to Union Station and uh, just for some idiotic reason I left my phone and wallet on the train and uh, it was such a sinking feeling I, I got out of the train and I took about four or five steps on the platform and I immediately kind of reached down to in my pocket to check my phone and I realized I didn't have it and by the time I turned around the doors had shut and the train uh, was heading down the tunnel and I just I sat there watching I just watched my life go down the tunnel it was like oh my gosh and so the the people at the metro were they were great uh I told them what had happened they did everything they could to, to locate my phone and ID and credit cards but for that brief moment uh after I watched the the train head down the tunnel I thought to myself oh my gosh I'm not going to be able to eat for a week. I'm not going to be able to get home. I have no ID. I didn't know what I was going to do. I started thinking about, uh, you know, creating some smoke signals to send back to Oklahoma to let Missy know I was alive. (laughs) Tap into your people's like origin. I love that idea. Yeah. So, uh, but no, um, again, people at Metro, they were great. We never uh, located the phone or the IDs. Um, Thank God I, I travel and I've told my kids and uh, this as well. Whenever you go, make sure you have two forms of ID, uh, keep them in separate locations. Uh, I always take a passport with me just in case. So I had my passport and uh, got to go to our local branch there in DC to the bank. And they let me withdraw some cash to get through the week. And, 
and then AT&T. Always get the insurance plan, folks. You kids out there, get the insurance plan. Right. Because uh, within 18 hours, I had a I had a new phone. So I was able oh, to. That's incredible. Yeah. To figure and what, out. what were you doing in D.C., Mitch, other than losing your stuff? <laughs> well, I was there uh, to conduct some interviews. Uh, we've been working with some students down at Baylor, Baylor University that are attempting to get a charter uh, for a student group called Gamma Alpha Epsilon, and we've had them on the show before. Great, really wonderful students uh, from the LGBTQ community uh, down there. And after talking with them and, and hearing uh, some of their stories, uh, we began to find out that the practice of conversion therapy is still alive and well, even though in some states and cities uh, where it's been banned, churches and nonprofit groups are able to continue this practice that's causing so much harm uh, to young people, uh, some mm -hmm. unfortunately bringing some to the brink of suicide and some who have actually committed suicide after going through conversion therapy. So we were in Washington, D.C. this week uh, conducting interviews, hearing people's stories, hearing from pastors who have ministered to uh, individuals uh, also met with the human rights campaign to talk a little bit about their work on this issue as well. So um, really heartbreaking, but yeah. uh, I think uh, when this story uh, comes out in August, uh, that people will find it very illuminating and challenging uh, to try to put some pressure on these organizations to cease and desist uh, this heinous practice. Yeah, and they, you know, there's been a lot of hide the ball. They change the name of it. They hide behind, you know, it's discipleship. It's, you know, mm -hmm. just getting people to get closer to God. But at its root, it is just so harmful. Like you said, it takes the vulnerable population and just makes them even more at risk. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so yeah, that's why I was there. I also got to meet with some, some great people. Uh, always like seeing Rabbi Jack Moline from Interfaith Alliance. I uh, got to have lunch with uh, Amy Butler, who's just a, a wonderful, delightful uh, minister in the D.C. area. And uh, just, just I got, got to hang out with some really cool people. So that was, that was neat to see. Absolutely. Um, speaking of being vulnerable... Um, those of us who still have children in our families who aren't old enough to be vaccinated are really quaking in our boots right now, um, and that's because of the Delta variant. Yeah, Autumn, it, you know, we live in Oklahoma. I've kind of grown accustomed to walking into the grocery store, to the post office, and in many instances, I'm the only one wearing a mask. Uh, Same. And... But uh, in D.C. this week, I was reminded that uh, not everybody lives in Oklahoma. Uh, everybody still wears a mask indoors uh, unless they're eating at a table or, or anything like that. But uh, they're really worried about the Delta variant and, and how you know, people are still vulnerable to this disease. We're seeing it, uh, cases rise in Missouri and Arkansas, Louisiana, parts of Texas and Oklahoma, uh, anywhere where there has not been a big push vaccinations or a resistance to vaccinations, uh, we're seeing hospital rooms full or fill up again. Yeah, we're starting to hear from our, you know, we are so thankful here at Good Faith Media to have a lot of doctors and healthcare workers that are, you know, among our listeners, board members, folks who come and talk on this podcast. And we're listening to them who are boots on the ground in these hospitals saying, okay, we were, we had 
seven patients. Now we have 47 patients and 98% of them haven't been vaccinated. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. I mean, this is something that is so simple. Uh, it saves lives. There's nothing political. It shouldn't be anything political about it. No. Uh, it is safe. Uh, it, uh, it is there to help us and help uh, spread or help to uh, cease the spread of this terrible, terrible disease. And my fear all along has been this thing is going to continue to mutate, and we're certainly seeing it mutate uh, into these variants now. And God, God forbid that it ever uh, mutates into children. Um, you know, right now our kids have been safe uh, throughout this yeah. Right. I mean, they get it, but it has, and talking with our pediatrician, it's typically in children, it's more gastrointestinal, which is not fun. But so far, you're right. It hasn't been fatal to children for the most part. But as we've listened to, you know, Dr. Amber Schmidtke and Mm -hmm. and these other epidemiologists who we've interviewed, it is only a matter of time before it is. And so for all of the, you know, personal responsibility arguments that we're hearing or, you know, free choice, like I don't have to get it, but that isn't, isn't just impacting you. It's impacting vulnerable populations who can't be vaccinated yet. So if you are not vaccinated, please, please make an appointment, get vaccinated. Uh, It really is a game changer and we've got to get it, continue to get ahead of this. and it's just, there's no reason not to be vaccinated at this point. No, you, you know, you and I have hosted this podcast for, um, you know, what is it, 18 months now? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. 17 months. Yeah. And I feel like if people don't hurry and get vaccinated, we're going to have to change the name of it to COVID, comma. Yeah, we're still talking about it. <laughs> we just continue to talk about COVID and have to have doctors on to talk about COVID and have scientists on to talk about COVID. and. If you talk with people who are in the healthcare industry who are working there, like, why aren't we listening to them? I just, I, it just boggles the mind. Just, yeah, I just shake my head and, and say a prayer uh, to people. Wear your mask, wash your hands, stay home if you can. Don't take your kids with you to the store. Like (laughs) all of these things, you know, we're, we're getting into a point now where it's August Mm -hmm. and school's about to start and parents again are going to be faced with this really tricky decision of what do I do with my kids who aren't vaxxed. Yeah, and that's, that's what I guess the, the most frustrating part about, or there's a lot of frustrating parts about it, but one, sure. of, one of the frustrating parts about this is that we're so close to, to being back to, you know, s- some semblance of normalcy. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. School's about to start. Uh, kids are going to be, you know, indoors. Uh, fall is right around the, the corner and people are going to be congregating more and more indoors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, uh, my fear is that we're going to start seeing spikes again. I hope not. I pray that we don't, but, uh, we were here last year and nobody, yeah, we were, and people ignored it and we saw what happened last winter. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, it's really, really stressful. Well, Autumn, uh, you and I have been busy this week, so oh, yeah. our good friend Lane Scales uh, conducted a great interview this week for us. She sat down with Dr. Jonathan Tran from Baylor University, and they talk a lot. They talk about a lot of great uh, ideas. So, I want to encourage everybody to stay tuned for this interview with Dr. Tran. Uh, he's just he's a fabulous and interesting guy. So, stay tuned. <laughs> I'm 
Jenna. I'm Ashley. And we are Reverends. Revs on the road. Hop in the car with us and come along for the ride. As we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. We travel the country. From the comfort of our place in Dallas for now. And catch up with beautiful people doing God's work advocating for disability rights, healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse, promoting mental health and the power of community, integrating spirituality and art, working for racial justice, and so much more. We've got red light rants, pit stops, and detours. Faith is a journey, and we're on it. So ride along with us. The Revs. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. This is Lane Scales, and I am here with Dr. Jonathan Tran. He is Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology at Baylor, and he holds the George W. Baines Chair of Religion. Dr. Tran is a well-published scholar, including two books that are forthcoming. One is called Christianity and the Promise of Politics, written with Stanley Hauerwas, his mentor from graduate studies at Duke University. But the book that we want to talk about today will be out this fall, in the fall of 2021. It's called Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. Jonathan and his wife, Carrie, are also dear friends of mine. We both moved our families to the Baylor campus and immersed ourselves in the faculty and residence life a few years ago, and those were such uh, formative years for me as an educator, and it was great to have you and your family right next door. It's great to be on, Lane, and uh, grateful for our continued friendship. Lane was a mentor of mine since my first years at Baylor University and certainly was a, an important voice as we lived on campus together. Thank you. So I have been lucky enough to get the copy of the proofs of this forthcoming book. And uh, as I began reading, uh, I saw that right off the bat, you shared your own personal narrative, your childhood and youth. Can you tell us about the young Jonathan Tran? Sure. So I came to America at the end of the Vietnam War. I was about two and a half years old in 1975 when the war ended. The United States signed a bill that allowed about 10,000 Vietnamese to come over to the country um, as war refugees. So my family was part of that group, except for a balloon from the allowed 10,000 to about 140,000. And this was just the first wave of what would become further waves of, you know, tens of thousands of Vietnamese war refugees settling in the United States. Our family came over. We were poor. Uh, We were trying to make do in the world. And this was a time where racism was, as I describe in the book, not only accepted, but it was expected. You just expected walking down the street as a small kid to have someone yell something out the window or in school for people to bully you because you're Asian American or Vietnamese. It wasn't, you know, nowadays if you go to Southern California where I grew up, there's a lot of Asian Americans. Like, I believe there's more Vietnamese folks in Southern California than anywhere outside of Vietnam. The same, say, for Chinese, um, 
Taiwanese, Filipinos, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of Asian Americans there now. But when I was growing up, the U.S. had only been allowing Asians to come in significant uh, numbers to America for about a decade. So the numbers were pretty small, and you dealt with a lot of bullying. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So in the book, um, you're uh, explaining in the introduction that you want to reframe our conversations around race and racism, moving from racial identity to political economy. Can you explain a little bit more about um, how that works and then what difference it would make for us? Sure. So let me start off by saying what I think racism is, is the justification of systems of domination and exploitation. The justification happens through the use of race categories. So let me unpack that a bit. So when we usually think about things like race and racism, we begin with concepts of racial identity. Lane's a white person. Jonathan is a an Asian-American person, so-and-so is African-American. Another person from another community might be Latinx or what have you. The idea is that saying Lane is white says that there's something essential about Lane, and that's her whiteness. And you could trace the whiteness maybe genetically uh, to a certain phenotypical reality. You can trace it historically, maybe back to the, her origins in Europe. You can trace it culturally. But the idea is that insofar as Lane has a race— that's something essential about her. And it's not simply essential about her, but it explains her essentially. That is, you can describe something about her, explain her behavior, explain her experience in the world, all back to this category of race. She does something, we say, well, that's because she's a white person. She's going to want these kinds of things or do these kinds of things in the future because she's a white person. I think that's a fatally flawed way of thinking about human beings. The question is, given how natural it is to think that way in America, how did it come about? Especially if you think how absurd it is, the idea that there's something essential, say something inside of her that explains all of her experience of the world, her desires, her, you know, her history, what she wants in the world. Or to think that something called Asian American describes who I am. Asia is a massive reality, right, mm -hmm. with tons and tons of different countries and languages and histories, and Asian Americans name a ton of experiences in America. So the idea that all that can be reduced to Asian American as some essential quality is absurd as saying that there's something essential about Lane as she's a white person. The question we need to ask is, how did we come up with these categories? If these are not only absurd, that is inaccurate portrayals of human beings, and they don't do much work. That is, they don't explain something as much or explain as much as we want to explain using race categories. Where did it come about? Well, this is where the question of political economy comes into play. And my definition that race and racism specifically is the use of racial categories to justify domination. And here we can look at Cedric Robinson's study of, say, employment in England in the 19th century. And what Robinson discovered by simply looking at the history was that race was a life category among white people in England. That is, race was used to describe why it was okay for the Irish to be treated so terribly and the English to be treated so well. Why the Irish could be eventually, you know, essentially enslaved, but English people couldn't. What others in the American context discovered is this exact same thing was going on in the United States. Why were some people, right, why were some people 
made indentured, that is temporary servants and, and laborers, and some were made permanent. Well, what we see is race was used to justify these systems. These were fundamentally and obviously unfair practices. Race was thrown on top of it to explain why black people could be enslaved permanently as chattel slaves and white people, right, could be temporarily enslaved as indentured workers. Mm -hmm. These were categories used to explain it. It was also a genius kind of divide and conquer strategy. You threw out, you know, you threw poor white people and poor black people in a lot together. They're all poor and oppressed. But they're all, all of a sudden taught once they're fed the, the lie about race, there's something fundamental that explains your lot in life. Right. Poor white people turn their wrath f away from the elites who set up the scenario. Right. And they blame all of it on other blacks, on all on black African-Americans. Once you have a scenario like this, then it just goes on and on. That's what race is. It's a set of categories used to justify exploitation and to divide people who might otherwise find each other in contexts of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And so, as you explain in the book, you're, you're really talking to a couple of different audiences. You're entering conversations about race theory, for sure, but you also have Christians as uh, one of your audiences. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this reframe might mean for Christians? If we begin with the idea, as I do, that what Christianity offers the world, what it introduces is a picture of liberation made possible by Christ's cross and resurrection. That is, God saves us in cross and resurrection, and the material effects of that salvation are things like liberation. Then the gospel is primarily about liberation. It's a gospel about the freedom God enables both in this life and in the life to come. That means Christianity is fundamentally committed and interested in all forms of oppression, exploitation, domination. That is, in some sense, part of what the gospel is working against in the world. That means what Christians need to do is put their ear to the ground and figure out where's the oppression happening, and which is a way of asking where's the spirit working. Because if the spirit is a liberating spirit, that is in the book of Exodus, right? It's not that God is freeing them from a spiritual um, slavery. It's an actual slavery. Uh, and in the same way in the New Testament, it's Christ is not killed for saying spiritual things. He's killed for saying political things. He's, shout, you know, he's shouting down the powers that have created a system of incredible inequality and um, injustice, just like the world we live in now. So what Christianity is doing is seeking out ways to figure out what is God doing in this world and following a bunch of liberation theologians, Christians who have thought about the gospel in these terms. Uh, this book is really the, the task of saying, well, God is going to be where God's oppressed people are. Mm -hmm. And so in, in addition to making us think uh, harder and differently about how we view race and racism— you also give us some really uh, practical examples. You went and joined with a community, um, uh, Redeemer in San Francisco, to see how might this be lived out in a practical way. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and, and what you learned from it? Sure. 
If racism is the use of racialization to justify domination, then as I argue in the book, anti-racism needs to be committed to two things. One, it needs to be committed uh, to deracialization, and I'll come back to that. And secondly, it needs, needs to introduce idioms of political economy or really ways of thinking about our common life that aren't premised on things like exploiting each other. So going to the first, we need to be committed to processes of deracialization. We need to deflate race as an explanatory category, the idea that race explains things. We need to get that out of our head. Remember, that's how the first racists created the idea of racism. White supremacists came in with the idea that race explains things. What does it explain? Why white people are not oppressed and why black people are oppressed. Race was used as a political tactic to explain away, obviously, um, problematic behavior. So we need to get away from the idea that race explains something. Now, mind you, I'm not advocating for a type of insipid, colorblind post-racialism. We need to keep race on the table enough to track the damage of racialization. But we do need to deracialize. We need to deflate the power of race as an explanatory category. Second, what we need to do is try to seek out ways of imagining our common life together that isn't about exploiting one another. So the book is really divided into two major case studies. The first one looks at a Chinese-American settlement in what's often called the deepest uh, part of the South or the most southern place on earth, the Delta, Mississippi, mm. um, where uh, what's often called by historians second slavery settled. Um, and after Reconstruction or during Reconstruction, Chinese um, migrant workers ended up there. And over the next hundred years, they, on the one hand, lived between black folks and white folks. But on the other hand, um, they developed business practices that are largely exploitative of their black neighbors. Now, these are conditions that they inherited. It's not things that they could have chosen into or really even out of. But it is a system of exploitation. And I think this is a really powerful example of how racism operates in our world today. You ask most of those Chinese Americans, they didn't have any animus in their mind. It's not like they were driven by hatred or a type of basic anti-blackness. They just inhabited a system that was anti-black, like a lot of our systems today, whether in housing, education, healthcare, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So my first case study is to see how Asian Americans have been complicit in processes of racialization and domination. The second case study, and they're both large case studies, the second one is to see how Asian Americans have been um, participant in systems of um, emancipation, of liberation, the opposite of racialization. And here I look at a contemporary uh, church community in what's known as the Bayview, the Bayview-Hunters Point part of San Francisco, the most marginalized part of the city. And here you have Asian Americans doing very different kinds of things. That is, they move into a very marginalized part of the city and try to reimagine life with their neighbors, largely along the lines of redistribution. They see how the systems of domination work against black life, and they, re they seek to redirect those systems. And so it's a church that created a software company that makes money which they re then redistribute to their neighbors, uh, out of which they've created a neighborhood school that educates largely for free um, 
communities, uh, black and brown communities in Bayview Hunters Point, Bayview Hunters Point, uh, in these extraordinary ways. And I look at this as what I call an ecology, a different way of imagining our life with one another. Mm-hmm. And I believe um, just some of the details. These were Stanford graduates who, um, you know, had all of this knowledge about software and asked the question, you know, if if I know these things and have these gifts, how can I use this for redistribution, which is what they see as, as a way into this ecology? It's, it's a beautiful story, and you go into detail about kind of how these um, few couples decided, let's, you know, let's change our lives dramatically and, and make this move. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I want to try to think about how they're helping to liberate systems of oppression. But, of course, that presumes too much. Mostly, I'm just interested in the ways that they find liberation for themselves. Mm. Part of the stories you mentioned is that a number, not all, but a number of the folks who started Redeemer, about a third went to Stanford University and Cal Berkeley, arguably one of the best private schools in the world and one of the best public schools in the world. These are Asian Americans who live into what's often referred to as the model minority myth, the idea that Asian Americans are a special breed of minority and therefore set the bar for what minorities should be like, right, because they're so successful and go to college and get great salaries. Well, the model minority myth has been shown for the myth that it is and the wedging tool that it is. It's trying to discipline other races, so-called races, to be like them. But the most pernicious thing about the model minority myth, in my mind, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, is the way it tempts Asian Americans into its narrative, and oftentimes by participating in forms of injustice in order Mm -hmm. to get ahead. That's partly what the first part of the book is doing. What's remarkable about these folks say, with their Cal degrees or their Stanford degrees or their UCLA degrees, is that they've been largely raised into the model minority myth. But at some point, the intersection with with the myth, that is their biographies and Jesus, fundamentally changes the story. They decide to, instead of living into the advantages that come with their educations, their financial backgrounds, the types of security they have, they live into a very different story, a story of what I describe in the book um, as dispossession. They dispossess themselves of the advantages that are largely given to them by a system of inequality. Instead of take, you know, laying claim to those advantages, they surrender them. Mm-hmm. And they surrender them for the sake of their neighbors. These, this is just, I think, a basically Christian story, the story of Jesus in the gospel, calling people to dispossess follow him, and then do things like give your life to the poor. Um, And what these folks do is they find themselves in this marginalized community, and they're their neighbors, and they figure out how to serve them. The kind of thing that can uh, best be done in community because it's a hard thing, and you're there, you know, doing it together. They started a school and a business. Yeah, what you just said about community is is – what I want to call the secret sauce of what they're doing. So as an outsider, when I heard about this church, uh, it's amazing what they're doing. It's amazing. It's, you know, chock full of Asian Americans and white folks and African American folks from the community and their deep partnerships with the black church in the Bayview 
um, that hosted them, has mentored them, and helped lead them. What's most remarkable isn't the things they do for others. What's remarkable is how what they do for others begins with their life as a church. It's really the common life of enjoying being together, of raising children together, of living commonly in neighborhoods, right, of growing up together in the case of uh, later generations of the church. I remember hearing this amazing story about one time they got in their heads that there's one street corner in the Bayview that was, you know, especially desolate. And so they decided one Saturday morning to go plant a bunch of trees, <laughs> right, and plants to beautify this this small area. And when I asked them about it, they said, I just did it because so-and-so was going to go do it. And I wanted to hang out with her, or, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so wanted to do this and we wanted to do it together. That's so much of the church, the idea of growing old together, of having a congregation that calls you to be a, you know, bigger than who you are on your own. Uh, one of my favorite stories is of a Stanford uh, student who, right, Stanford is the kind of place where you're asked to change the world. At the same time, you're, showed, you're shown how horrible the world is. Uh, that's a tall order. But the idea is that you're at Stanford because somehow you can handle it. You're especially gifted. Well, this student did what probably most of us should have done when we hear how horrible the world is. She was utterly overwhelmed and paralyzed. She actually had what she describes as a depressive episode and had to withdraw for a quarter from Stanford. She used the rest of the quarter to go hang out with this church, Redeemer, which is about 30 miles from Stanford University. And what she found there was people doing the extraordinary things that they were called to do at a place like Stanford but they are doing it in the most ordinary, regular ways, through friendship, in neighborhoods, through systems, right, through community uh, organizations, through churches. And she realized the blending of the extraordinary in the ordinary wasn't simply right a picture of how you do this work in a sustainable way. It was a picture of who Jesus is, right? The incarnation of Christ is the embedding of God, uh, often in the most ungodly of contexts. Um, in, the, in the systems of just, uh, injustice and domination. I think there's a really powerful picture of how Christianity can uh, imagine itself in the world, not really as changing the world. We don't have that kind of ability or power. We shouldn't have that kind of pretense, but really living into the reality that God in Christ has already changed the world, has saved it. And so as this student discovered, she simply needed to lean into what God was doing. She describes being... Uh, in, in a moment at church, having the church's litany wash over her, finding this extremely liberating uh, of the burdens that she had been given when she was told to save the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is a beautiful, um, different kind of story of liberation. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the this is the challenge for us as we come to terms with how tall an order anti-racism is, how persistent anti-blackness is in our society. That kind of stuff can waylay you, and you're going to find your consolations either by completely ignoring those realities or taking up forms of resistance that become violent or desperate or just simply unsustainable. I think what we want to do is speak anti-racism within the more basic natural reality that justice and mercy are natural to our world because justice and mercy are natural to God, and this is God's world. If anything, that's what this church claims, that we're just doing this because that's how the world was made to be. Mm. Yes. 
So as we um, come to a close, we have uh, a question we always ask in our uh, interviews at Good Faith Media. Our tagline is, there's more to tell. So is there something more that you would like to tell? Yeah, I mean, I hope the book, you mentioned, Lane, that the book speaks to two very broad and often two very different audiences. One is kind of race theory folks or anti-racist activists, on the other hand, kind of confessional Christians. And while there is some blending between these communities, they're often very separate and often distrustful of each other. In fact, in the Oxford reviews for the book, you know, one of my reviewers was, I believe, an establishment kind of ethnic studies person said something like, I love the book. I don't know what the theology is doing here. And the other reviewer, I'm pretty sure, was a kind of textbook theologian who said, I love this book. I don't know what the ethnic studies is doing here. <laughs> so I'm trying to speak to both audience. I, I think that's an incredibly essential thing that we learn from one another and we learn to sit together. It's also the case that the book would then kind of create its own share of people who challenge it, who object to certain claims. But I think this is going to be the most fruitful thing. I think this is the ground for true solidarity. When we're honest with each other about the differences that we bring, uh, and including the challenges that come with those differences, but it's really in acknowledging them that we can find one another and then move forward together. Mm-hmm. So it's an ambitious thing and a brave thing uh, for you to write this, and I'm I'm so glad you did. And and uh, as I was saying about the Asian Americans at Redeemer that you told us about, uh, who are being good stewards, you uh, have been called to the academy. You've been called to uh, to think these thoughts that are uh, so important to us as Christians, but it's all overlaid with your belief and your commitment to Jesus Christ and um, what a good steward you are of, of that gift. And I just uh, appreciate the way you share. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I, I suppose it's the attempt to be a good thing. I guess it feels uh, more than anything, given my history, an inevitable thing. Uh, Whether that is a good inevitable thing or not will be for readers to decide. All right. Well, thank you for, for being with us today. Thanks for having me on.